We'll spend some time in the word this morning. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for preserving your word for us. We thank you for this epistle, the book of Romans. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to look into this marvelous book and to these marvelous truths. And so we just ask, Father, that you would be with me, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. More importantly, allow me to exalt your son and uh, give me the words that will edify your people here. Give us hearts to listen to your word and to receive your word and the things that come from your word. We just thank you and love you for everything you've given us in your son's name. Amen. I know that during this series, I've spent a lot of time talking about the Protestant Reformation. Some of that is because that's one of my favorite periods of time. I love that history of uh, just of the world, but also of church history. And there's so many interesting characters, so many interesting people. But one of the things that I've always resonated with, with the Protestant Reformation, is that here you have this group of, of people who are challenging the church, the universal church. That's what it was called back then, uh, back in the 1500s. It was called the universal church. It's still called that today, by the way. That's what the word Catholic means. Catholic means universal. That's what they call themselves. And there was this debate over how is one made right with God? From my perspective... I think at that time, the church had lost its way to the point that it would be very difficult to walk into a church and actually hear the gospel. And so these reformers came up. They wanted to reform the church. That was their goal. And as they were contending with the church at that time, they synthesized their arguments and they they talked about their, their arguments and their contentions with the church at that time by five sayings, and, and the sayings are in Latin because that's how all academics talked back then. They, they all used Latin. And they, they came up with these five things that they would say, this is our contention against the, the Roman Catholic Church, against the Roman Church. And I, I not only find these contentions to be accurate historically, but they also, found, they also form a pretty good foundation for us moving forward on the things that are actually really important. And so they're called the five solas. Uh, Sola means alone in Latin. And so these are what they are. It's sola gratiae, solus Christus, sola fide, sola scriptura, and solio deo gloria. Basically what that is, is it's grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, scripture alone, God's glory alone. And it was those five things that they said, this is our contention against the church at the time. And they form a really good basis for us. It's interesting. I, I don't want to geek out on history here, but there are some things that are really important. You have to understand that at the time when the Reformation was happening, there was this scholastic and scholarly rejuvenation of reading old books. And wanting to read old books in the original language. And so what happened was there was a mad dash to print a Greek version of the New Testament. And there was a Greek version that was printed. And all of these 
scholars said, great, now we can read the Bible in Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. At the time, all they had was a, what was called the Latin Vulgate. It was a translation in Latin. And there was one particular verse in particular that really blew things up. And I just want to share this really quickly because it's really important about what we're going to talk about today. Just quickly turn with me to Matthew 4. Matthew 4, verse 17. So as these scholars are reading, they start in Matthew, right? They get all the way to chapter 4, and they see something in the Greek, and they go, well, that's pretty important. Notice what it says. It's verse 17 of Matthew 4, and it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you and I might read that and go, What's so earth-shattering about that verse? Well, in the Latin Vulgate, it actually says, And from this time, Jesus began preaching, Do penance, for the kingdom of, hand, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you might not know what penance is, and you might go, that's not really a big deal. That is a huge deal. Penance is the act that happens when you were to go to confession. The priest would say, based off of the sin you just confessed to me, in order to atone for that sin, and in order to for receive forgiveness, you must do one, two, three, and that's called penance. So when they read it in the Greek and it says, repent, they went, well, that's a big difference. That's a huge difference. And what started happening was men like John Huss and Tyndale and Wycliffe, they started reading in the Greek and they said, man, there's so much stuff that is found just, just been a plain reading that contradicts what we've been hearing in the church. And these was these men who started to translate the Bible into the common language. The Roman Catholic Church did not like this. They put those men to death because they said the common man should not be able to read the scriptures. And so this common theme of the scripture alone is the authority for the believer. It is not the church. It's not the pope. It's not the councils. It's the word of God. God wrote this for us. This is the ultimate authority. And so from that, then, becomes the, then starts this rejuvenation of biblical and expositional sermons. And in the midst of that, what did they start saying? They started saying, because this is what the scriptures teach, that salvation is by God's grace alone, not by the merit of us as the worshipers. You don't have to do penance. It is on the basis of grace alone that God saw fit and had pity upon us that he extends the gospel message to us unmerited. And that salvation is by Christ alone. It's not me plus Jesus. It's not me plus this action plus Jesus. It is solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ by which man is right with God. And how do we apprehend this grace and this, and this salvation that comes to us through Jesus? It's on the basis of faith alone. Not faith plus, 
faith alone. And I think they correctly say, if, if that is your focus, God's word is the authority, the ultimate authority for the believer. Salvation is by grace, God's grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, on the basis of faith alone, then the only one that can receive glory and should be worshipped and praised and venerated has to be the triune God alone. As we're thinking about this passage in Romans 1.16 this morning, I couldn't help but think of those five solas, think about those five contentions, and think about how important they are in our own life as we're living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this passage, there is this incredible statement that Paul makes that we've been spending some time digging in because the truth here is so profound it is, it is so profound and yet so simple. I want us to understand this truth. I want you to understand that it's on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of faith alone, that you are right with God. There is no other means by which you have a right relationship with God other than the gospel and other than what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. And you apprehend that solely on the basis of faith. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that word faith. So go with me quickly to Romans 1.16. I'm going to read it, do a little bit of review. And then after that review, then I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the three things I want to point out in the last clause of Romans 1.16. So notice here in 1.16 where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Remember that for, every time we see the word for or therefore, we stop and we see what it's there for, right? You always got to go back to the context. When you see the word for, you go, something was just said that is now being explained. And remember, in the first 15 verses, we talked about Paul's ministry. We talked about how he was set apart for the gospel. We talked about Paul's message, the gospel message. That the message that man is, is, is separated from God from his sin, but it's only because Jesus Christ came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, was buried, rose again on the third day, demonstrating that, that this is the only way that man can have a right relationship with God and that when you place your faith on Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and resurrection and trust him alone to have a right relationship with God, that is the only basis to be right with God. That's his message. This message isn't new. This message was talked about a long time ago. It was talked about in the Old Testament. This message isn't a fabrication. It's not a myth. It's not like the Greek myths or the Egyptian myths. This was something that happened in the real world at a real time with real people. Jesus was a real person. He really died and he really rose again. Then Paul talks about his pastoral desire, his, his, not only his message and his ministry, but then his method, right? And he wants to come to the church in Rome, and he wants to talk to the believers, and he wants them to grow in their faith. He wants them to become faithful. He wants them to, to grow in obedience, and he's going to do that by talking about the gospel to them, because non-believers need the gospel, and believers need the gospel. We need to hear it. And there are lots of things that you and I learn when we think about the gospel and meditate on God's grace 
that he's demonstrated towards us. In fact, that's what the book of Romans is. The book of Romans not only tells us the gospel, but then tells us the implications in the believer's life because of the gospel. That's what we're learning. And so Paul says in 15, I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you. For I'm not ashamed of it. This is my boast. This is the thing that Paul's known for. He's known for the gospel. He boasts in the gospel. It's... It's the message amongst messages. It's the most important message. He's not ashamed of it. There's no reason for him to be ashamed of it. And there's no reason for us to be ashamed of the gospel. It is the most relevant message on earth. Last week, we then looked at the next clause, starting with the word for. For it is the power of God for salvation. We talked about this. The gospel is the power of God. It brings about salvation. It's the only thing that can make man right with God. This is what God uses. This is the means by which salvation comes to us is through the gospel. And this is how God has ordained it. And through the gospel message, through his word and through the spirit, people are redeemed. We're now going to go to this next clause which is really just kind of explaining a little bit further the clause that we looked at last week. So it's for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so as we're going to look at this, we're going to wrestle with this, this idea of the gospel is universal. There's a universal nature to the gospel. We'll talk about what that means. That's, there's a universality to it. We could also say it's universal slash exclusive. We'll talk about that. Then we're going to talk about that phrase, to everyone who believes. We're going to talk about what, what, what does it mean to believe? What, what, what does Paul mean here when he uses the word believer, the believing one? And then we're going to talk about how relevant it is by looking at to the Jew first, then also to the Greek. It's relevant to those different cultures. You couldn't ask for two different cultures, the Jewish culture and the Greek culture, but the same message said the same way in those situations is relevant to each of those people regardless of their culture. That's amazing. That's, that's, the, that's how amazing and how powerful the gospel is. So let's first look at this. It is universal. Notice as Paul here begins, he says... Uh, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So notice that the gospel power of salvation is limited to the believer, right? So it's, that, that's what he's doing. He's God through his sovereign work and through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the, the word. What, what he does as he takes the initiative in our salvation is he's the one that brings about the believer. We looked at that last week. That's why it's called birth. He's birthing the believer. And so this is, on the one hand, very exclusive. It's the power of God to the believer. It's the power of God. It's the glory to the believer. But it does say to everyone. And so, on the one hand, it is exclusive to the believer. But yet, it's, there's this idea that it's to everyone. And so, how do we square this? in our minds as we think about the gospel and the gospel message, that it is efficacious, it works in the life of the believer, right? 
It's that efficacious thing. It's that thing that brings about its intended result in the life of the believer. But then what do we do with everybody else? Did Jesus die on the cross for everybody else or just for the believer? And the answer is yeah. Both. It's both. It's to everyone. That's the idea. The gospel doesn't have to change based upon the culture that it goes into. The gospel itself, the message itself is universal. So we could go to a place that they've never seen an American before and preach the gospel. And we can go to the streets of Astoria and preach that same message. And it is that same message to everyone. But let's get back to the question at hand that I posed. How is it that it's works in the life of the believer, but yet at the same time is for everyone? Well, there's a lot of passages we could turn to, but I'd like to turn to 1 John chapter 2. I was thinking about this during Sunday school as Greg was talking, and uh, as Greg was talking, I don't know what he said, but it made me think of this verse, and I grabbed my wife's pen and wrote this passage out on my hand. My daughter was upset. Dad wrote on his hand, Mom says that's bad. Dad's now going to get a spanking when we get home because he did the thing we're not supposed to do. But I will say this. There are certain times... If your parents say it's okay that you're allowed to write on your hands, especially if it's for a scripture reference for the sermon that's going to be happening here in a second, you are allowed, that, that is acceptable in the eyes of, of at least this parent. So, 1 John 2, let's just start in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. That's his desire. His desire is writing to believers. He wants them to lead a, a life of holiness he wants them to be dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Isn't that great? So he says he doesn't want us to sin. I don't want anybody to sin. But guess what? You're still going to sin. That, that's the implication. And guess what? In the midst of that, we have this advocate, right? This one who, who advocates for us. And it's Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, what gives him the right to be our advocate? Here's this big word. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's a big word. That's a great word, by the way. Uh, I don't know how many points that'll get you in Scrabble, but I'll be honest with you, if you play it in Scrabble and I find out about it, you'll get a, you'll get a gold star for Sunday school. That's, a, that's at least a gold star for Sunday school as a Sunday school all-star. The word propitiation has this idea that there is a, a punishment, that there, there's a consequence to, to sin. There's a consequence to, to somebody who's acting outside of what God wants. And that there has to be some sort of atonement made for that sin. There has to be some, some way to absolve that sin. There has to be some way to remove that, that punishment. And so the idea here then is propitiation is that Jesus Christ is the one who removes God's righteous wrath from us, right? So he's the one that absorbs that wrath on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That, that's what propitiation is. There was that wrath that was upon us. Jesus took that wrath for us. 
So he's, he, he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that deals with our sins. He's the only one that can deal with our sins. And then notice what he says. And not for ours only, but who else? But also for the sins of the whole world. So what does that teach us? That teaches us that on one level, Jesus made propitiation, provided a, a way, provision for the whole world to deal with their sin. He did that. He provided a way that all the world could have their sin dealt with. However, he doesn't deal with everyone's sin. It's only those who are in Christ that actually are no longer under the condemnation of Jesus Christ. That, that's clearly what John is saying here. And so while we say the gospel is universal, what we mean is that there's a provision made for every single human being. However, the way that God works, he works in the life of the church. And those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are what rescued from the wrath to come and are now in Christ Jesus. And there's now no condemnation. So this is why we can send out a missionary somewhere. They can go. We can pray for them to share the gospel. It's a real offer of the gospel to the people that they're talking to. And when, they're there, when they then believe, we can then say, praise the Lord. Look at the power of the gospel in their life. Okay? So, back to Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, this word, belief, is also the same word for faith, right? It's the same word in the Greek. And so the question is, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? This morning after Greg's Sunday school, I don't know, Greg, what you said this morning that would cause all these great theological questions to arise, but we had a discussion of what is the definition of saving faith? How do you describe that? Is it possible to say, I have faith, but I exhibit my faith this way? What, what does this mean to have faith? What does it mean to be a believer? So, so the power of God is to salvation to everyone who is, literally in the Greek, is a believer. So what does that mean? Well, let's start first with the definition of faith. Sorry for all the Bible turning this morning, but I, I would like to use biblical words with biblical definitions, right? That's a good thing to do. So the best place for a definition of faith would be the book of faith, right? The Bible. So this morning, as we're defining faith, let's go to Hebrews 11. There's lots of other passages we could go to. And if there's another one that you think of and you go, he didn't say my favorite verse. I'm sorry. There's a lot to choose from. And this is the one that I find the most helpful. So if we go to Hebrews 11, remember this church is a, or this group of believers that the author is writing to, they're, they're struggling with a lot of things. They're struggling with a lot of things. A lot of things that you and I would say, well, that, that, that seems pretty basic stuff. So in the midst of this, as he's encouraging them to not go back to the law, to remain faithful to Jesus, to walk in fidelity with Jesus, to love Jesus, he, he has to take some time to describe what that means. What that looks like. I want you to love Jesus and live by faith, believing Jesus. Here's what that looks like. 
So we often refer to Hebrews 11 as the hall of fame of faith, I suppose. It's probably better the example of faith, right? Because that's what he's doing. So in verse 1 of chapter 11, notice what he says. He says, now faith is. So we automatically know that what is to follow is a description of faith. What is it? It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. So faith has two components then, doesn't it? It's this assurance, this confidence, this expectation of a thing hoped for, right? So there's a promise that is given and faith goes, I expect that promise to be fulfilled, right? That's one aspect of faith. There's a promise given, I expect it to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Because if it already has happened yet, then guess what? You don't hope for it. If you're hoping for something that has already happened, you don't understand what any of those words mean, right? You don't do that. Nobody does that. So it has to be something that hasn't happened. So it's an expectation. And then notice what else? It's then the conviction of things not seen. So there's this... I don't know what we would call it. We would call it a, uh, an emphasis, a, a, an embracing, uh, a sense of this is true, even though I don't see it, right? So a promise is given. And so when I think of a promise that's given, if I trust it, if I have faith in it, if I have faith in a person, they promise this thing, I go, I have enough conviction. I have enough trust. I, I have enough in what they're saying, even though I don't see it, that it will happen. It's kind of like the idea of resting in it. I believe it's true. I believe it's true. I'm convinced it's true, right? And notice that this convincing and this assurance involves much more than just, yep, yeah, whatever, sure, I guess. This is much more, right? It has the idea of expectation, has the idea of conviction, of assurance, it has, it has not only the mind which is persuaded of the promise and of the character of the one who gives it, but it also is an act of the will. I am actively expecting it. I have this aspect of conviction in it. Now, the author goes on and he says a lot of other things. So then he goes on in verse 2, he says, For by it... The people of old received commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Then he goes on to talk about Abel. He goes on to talk about Enoch. But notice what he then says in verse 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. You see that? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The, Paul and the author of Hebrews, the author in John, is absolutely unified in this. You do not have a right relationship with God other than you believe God, you believe his promises, and this is the basis of your expectation and conviction. God is true. What he says is true. What his word says is true. I'm convinced intellectually, and I'm putting all of my eggs in that basket. I'm not leaving any out. I, I'm full in. I'm trusting. I'm leaning. 
Because if I don't have faith in what God says, if I don't have faith in his promises, then I can not please him. This is the basis by which man is made right with God. Do you get it? This is what the gospel is. That the righteous one is righteousing the unrighteous. That's what he's doing. And then notice what it says. It says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Yep. Right? I mean, we don't create, well, I guess some people do create imaginary friends and then try to become really good friends with those imaginary friends. But normally, you don't try to become best friends with someone that does not exist. So, of course, you have to believe he exists. And notice this, and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, how would, how would they seek him? It has to be on the basis of faith. It has to be on the basis of the promises that he offers. Then he goes on, he talks about Noah, right? How Noah is an example of faith. So notice in verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning the events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he was, con- he was uh, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Well, now the author is now adding something else in. What is he saying here? He is saying that Noah was declared righteous on the basis of believing God. He was doing what was right, adhering to a standard, declared to be righteous because God declared him to be righteous on the basis of faith. This is the way it has always been. This is the way it will always be. It is always on the basis of faith. It can never be on the basis of anything else. Then he goes on and he talks about Abraham. Abraham, the believer, who goes around. Imagine this. I know this is a simplification of it. But in my mind, when I read the story of Abraham in Genesis, I get the sense that one day God goes to Abraham and says, I want you to go to a land, which I'll show you. And my first question being a Hilbert would go, okay, Where do I start? Which direction do you want me to go? And the sense of the text that I get is, just go. When you're there, I'll let you know. Imagine planning that trip. Husbands, imagine convincing your wives. What trip are we going on? We'll know when we get there. Well, how do I pack? What clothes do I wear? We'll know when we get there. God told me. What? God told me. He he was a believer. that, that's the sense you get. I know that's an oversimplification, but, but, but notice, it just wasn't that he just was like, oh, cool, I need a new neighborhood. The, the neighbors are getting a little rowdy here in the land of Ur and Uz. I, I need to get out of here. Uh, no, notice in, in verse 9, it says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So they left because of the promise that God made. And then in verse 10 it says, For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So so you see, he's looking at a promise. He's looking at this great big promise, and he's looking for this thing that's not on the earth. But he's, he's expecting it to come true. He's heard the promise. He says, I expect this promise to be true. I'm convinced of the character and the promise of the one who's, who's giving it. This is an example. Then in verse 13, notice what it says as it, as it talks about Abel, Enoch, Noah, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Sarah or Sarai. Verse 13, he says, all these died in faith, not receiving the thing promised. They died in faith. Why, why, why did we say that? Because they didn't receive it. They didn't receive it, but it was still the promise. So they died in faith. They didn't receive the promise, but they, they died believing the promise would come true. And he says, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. You see what he's saying? You almost get this mental image of God makes this promise and it's far off in the distance. And they go out and they're convinced that the promise is coming. It's almost like somebody walking outside of their house, looking at it and going, there it is. There it is. It's real. It's real. It's as real to me as if it was actually right here happening right now. I, I, I have such an expectation of this and trust that it's going to happen. So the question is, what, what is a believer then? Well, a believer is one who lives based off the promises of God, expects the promises of God to be true, has such a conviction of them, even though we haven't seen them. And think about the gospel message. You can be right with God if you place your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I've never seen Jesus. Never have. I don't know what heaven looks like. Never been there. Those promises of eternal life. I, I can't fathom what eternal is. Right? I'm co-heirs with Christ. Okay. That's a big promise. There's all these promises that I will no longer deal with my sin. The, the guilt of sin is now erased. The presence of sin will be erased. Those are some significant promises. What do I do? I look at those promises based off of God's word, based off the spirit and the working of the spirit. And as he causes me to be born again, I look at those promises and I go, yes, those are true. Jesus is that one. I am trusting him. I am leaning on him and I'm leaning on him and him alone. That's what faith is. Now, does this mean that you have everything figured out? No, I am far more articulate about this now than when I was when I did place my faith in Jesus, right? That language that I used when I first believed was not as articulate as it is now. But it doesn't have to be. My language doesn't have to be as articulate now as long as with my heart I placed my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which I did, which I hope you have done, which you have done. So this is the power of God to salvation. You are right with God on the basis of faith. You are being made right by the power of the Spirit as you walk by faith. So not only is this universal, sorry, I got carried away. It is also of faith. And then last, notice how relevant it is. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's been a lot of people who've misunderstood this phrase, to the Jew first. Um, some people think that all this means is that the gospel came to them first chronologically and that Paul is just letting the church in Rome know who most likely was there at the day of Pentecost. Yeah, no, it came to the Jews first, remember? 
and then it comes to the Greeks, chronologically speaking. While that is true, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Nor do I think what Paul is saying is that there is some sort of special, special thing, some sort of special thing to being Jewish when it comes to the church, as if the Jewish people somehow become varsity and all the rest of us goyim, Gentiles are now junior varsity, right? You're not a Jew, second class, third class. Only the Jews get the platinum card, get a go on the plane first. That's not what Paul's saying either, okay? Now, it is true that Paul will talk about this issue of the Old Testament promises made to Israel. Now you have Gentiles believing in Jesus. You have this language that we're co-heirs. We're part of the same body. How does this all work? Paul will wrestle with that later on as we kind of read this morning in Romans chapter 11. And we will deal with that in greater detail. But do know this. There is something very special about the Jew, those who come from Abraham. They are the ones that God has chosen to work through. He chose Abraham and he said, through your descendants, I will bless the earth. Jesus was Jewish, right? The promises were made to the Jews. The law was given to the Jews. Jesus will sit on a Jewish throne in Jerusalem. There is something very unique about that. There is a historical privilege, I guess you could say, right? And it is true that you and I were grafted into these promises, though we have some very unique promises as the church, as we'll see. What I think Paul is really saying here, though, is I think what he's saying is he's trying, to, he's trying to make this general statement that he knows he will deal with later on. And so it's this idea that, yes, God primarily worked with the Jews. And interestingly enough, it was Paul's custom to go to the Jews first. But I think because he says to everyone, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, he is demonstrating, one, on the one hand, this unique privilege that the Jews had historically. But at the same time, inside of the church, race and ethnicity does not matter. Culture does not matter. Who your dad is, who your mom is, does not matter in the church. Because it's to everyone, whether you're Jewish or you're Greek. But at the same time, Paul gives the acknowledgement of that historical privilege. So think of this just briefly. If you have this message that can be preached to a Jewish person who has the Old Testament and then can be said to a Greek who's not part of that and the message can make both of them right with God, that is the most relevant message. What other message do you know that we could go around the world and say, here, live your entire life based off of this and you will be right with God? I'll do one even better. Name a message that you could bring to everywhere in the world right now that everyone will agree with. There is none. Think about a message. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be something as simple as Pokemon Go is awesome. It, it, it doesn't really matter. Name a message that could go into any culture and you don't have to sit there and try to explain it. And, and that, that you have to try to demonstrate its relevance. 
The gospel is the only one. It's the only one that can be shared in any place at any time. And it is the most important message at that moment. Because it is the only message that brings men, women, boys, girls into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. I will be honest, if you, if, if this passage has really, really hit home with you and you're starting to see, hopefully you've already seen it, but this is reinforcing it, that you, you realize, okay, it's only by faith that one is right with God on the basis of Jesus Christ. It may come to a, sh- it may become as a shock to you that not everybody who claims to follow the Lord Jesus Christ would agree with that message. There are plenty of people who do not like that message. Why? There's lots of reasons. I don't really want to get into the reasons because there's potluck. Unless you really want me to, unless you want to hold off potluck, I can, I can make this go for another three hours if you'd like. But let me just say this. This should suffice. And, and I think you know. If you hold to a biblical definition of faith, you hold to a biblical definition of the gospel, you will make some really new, you will make some new family friends, right? People that you will meet that you'll go, wow, I have a brother and sister. Isn't that incredible? But you will also, you'll also make a lot of enemies because the message of the gospel is offensive because it does say to people, you don't know God and you are incapable of knowing God. In fact, not only do you not know God, but you're also a sinner who doesn't do what's right. And then you're saying, and then there was this guy in AD 33 who was a carpenter who died in Israel, and he is the only way of salvation for you. You can't think your way out of it. You can't will your way out of it. It is solely through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is, um, if it's not true, that is the most ludicrous message ever composed. And if it is not true, we are the laughing stock of everyone. But we know it is true. Therefore, it makes it the most relevant message. But just that message itself is offensive. Just that message by itself offends. It's confused. People will want to ask for things. We'll demonstrate it's true. Pray that God performs a miracle so that I know it's true. That's the opposite of faith. Sorry. Tell me something I have to do in order to be right with God. It's the opposite of faith. Because it's not what you can do. It's what Jesus has done. Give me a really good intellectual argument that I should trust a carpenter from AD 33. It's the power of God for salvation. Now, we, we, can, we can be winsome when we talk about those things. But to be honest, you understand. It's on the basis of faith. During the time of the Great Reformation, not to glorify the Reformation or the Reformers, but I think they offer some really good illustrations, both good and bad, by the way. There was this one guy that I I do find very striking. He was a shopkeeper in France, very dedicated to uh, the Roman church, heard the gospel, radically changed his life. He started going around sharing the gospel with people, talking to people about Jesus, very bold. Uh, to the point that it upset the local friar 
that, that was uh, the priest, we could say. And he was captured and condemned, and he was, they said, we're going to burn you at the stake. So as he was being burned at the stake, and it was pretty horrific how, how it happened, it was said that he was given an opportunity to pay homage to Mother Mary, and all of it would end. And his response was shaking his head no with a smile. The whole crowd went nuts. They thought he was demon-possessed because only, only a demon would smile in the face of eternal fire. And the priest stood in front and started talking about how this guy is going to spend the rest of his life in hell. He died silently, really no fanfare. Everybody patted themselves on the back going, look, we killed the heretic who believed that it's simply on the basis of faith alone that someone's right with God. But that friar saw how that guy died and said, okay, that wasn't demonic. This man was convinced. This unlearned shopkeeper was convinced. What is this about? That friar then became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and became a faithful preacher of the gospel. You see, it, it cuts both ways. Not only is it the power of God to us who are being saved, and it's that thing that we go, I'm not ashamed of this. I glory in the gospel. It is the most important thing to me. It is something that I'm willing to live for. It's something I'm willing to die for. It is the message. There is no other message given to man by which men can be saved. And yet it's that same message that challenges me to stand up in opposition to it because I realize since it is the only message, I got to stick to my guns, right? I got to, whatever may come, because it's not about me. It's not about a poll. It's about people honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. So may the Lord help us glory in the gospel, glory in this message, see its relevance. May, may God help us beat back our pride so that we say our only hope is in God's grace and in his mercy towards us. Let's go ahead and let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for all that you've, you've done for us in the gospel, all, all that you've done uh, for us through your son, Jesus Christ, we are just so very thankful, so very thankful for all that you've done. We ask that we would boast in the gospel. It would be our glory. It would be our honor. It would be the thing that we would hope in. Uh, Father, help us not be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to walk by faith, and keep us away from those things that so easily entangle us, that so easily Twitter paid us, that so easily um, pull us away from the simple devotion of Jesus Christ. We thank you for today. We thank you for everything you've given us. In your son's name, amen.